All right, Chloe, you want to open us? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the group of us that were able to gather here together. I pray that you would speak through Sam, give him wisdom as he speaks, and use his words to strengthen, strengthen and edify us, help us to take something away from tonight and apply it to our lives help us to be gracious during the holiday season, especially with family members that could be difficult to, to spend time with. And Jesus and Um So last week, I was about as hoarse as could be. Uh, we, we pushed through that, and I paid the price for like three days, but we're... <laughs> Somewhat back, I still can't sing a certain range, but it's okay. Um, someone tell me something, anything that they remember from last week. Or actually, I tell you what, let me open it since this is sort of our last time in Galatians. Tell me something that you remember from the other uh, lessons we've had in Galatians. I've tried to hit the high points of what I considered sort of our four high points in the book of Galatians. Um, give me something that you've, <laughs> please, <laughs> that you've taken away from Galatians. Yeah, Lindsay. Uh, It's a really good quote. It's a really good quote. Yeah. Something else. Questions. Uh, yeah, sorry. I was gonna say there's there's no like redemptive belief in Jesus and anything. Yeah. Um, someone give me who who's the antagonist that Paul's been dealing with? Um, tell me the caricature of. Uh, yeah. Judaizers. Yeah. And uh, specifically trying to require um, external things to faith, such as um, requiring perfection, perfect use of the law of Moses, on top of faith in Christ. And then um, somebody tell me sort of the biblical theological approach that I've been using to tie the whole canon of scripture together. We've been talking, I've, I've really emphasized biblical theology throughout this. What are some of the themes that you've picked up on the biblical theological level? The whole story of scripture, what have we been talking about? Exile. Exile. And what, uh, what is exile in context of the law? I remember... I don't know if this is the answer, but I remember we were talking about how Paul realized when he was blinded that he was the one who was in exile, and then he came out of that. Yep. Any other thoughts on exile, sin, exile, return, paradigm? Any other thoughts to offer? Okay. Very good. Um, so tonight, um, everyone has hand up, correct? Um, okay. Um, tonight, we're on our last high point, really. Uh, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5 tonight. Um, so last Saturday, I think it was, and then into Sunday, you and I were talking at the apartment. Um, I was obsessing over a new song because I like to play a song until I hate that song. Um, and that song is New Romantics by the great theologian Taylor Swift. <laughs> and so it was the song that I added to the queue at the clubhouse. That's what, is that where we landed? We never came. Okay. 
Well, I, whatever their apartment's called, I ended up adding it to the queue of music that we were listening to. Um, and all day, I listened, Saturday, I listened to New Romantics on the way into work, and I listened to New Romantics on the way home from work, and I meditated on New Romantics all day um, because of one line in the song. The anyone, Actually, this is really good. Anyone know what line ends New Romantics by Taylor Swift? <laughs> Anyone? No one knows. Okay. Well, yeah. yeah. Um, so your uh, your outline has a little clue there. The best people in life are free. The best people in life are free is how Taylor Swift ends New Romantics. And so I was just at work all day. I was like, why? Why are the best people in life free? I was just like, that's a very interesting thing to end a song with, and, it, and the thing is, it's, it's not unique to her, right? This is a refrain that seems to be common to everyone in secular circles, conservative circles, Christian circles. It really doesn't matter even if you're in the most liberal end of the pool, or if you're in the most libertarian, conservative end of the pool. Everyone across that spectrum is interested in whatever this freedom ideal is. And so, take our modern context in America, post-Enlightenment, post-John Locke, we have a lot of freedom that we have been inundated with throughout our growing up years. But if you go back, I mean, if you're going all throughout history, what have people always been interested in? Freedom, freedom of the will, freedom politically, freedom in every single capacity. And so I just think it's a really interesting uh, item that is, seems inherent to humanity to yearn for freedom, whatever that means. And so that was my question, is why do people desire freedom? What is, uh, I mean, what is the virtue in freedom? Uh, what does it mean to be really free? If we're, if we're gonna say, yes, I wanna be free, then what does that mean? That is, to me, the, the concept that knits together the entire text from uh, verses one through six, and then we have a sort of an interlude there from seven to 12, but then 13 through 15, it's freedom, freedom, freedom. So what is freedom? <clears throat> Well, I think our culture, um, honestly, on both sides of the political aisle, have, have sort of misunderstood what it means to be truly free. Uh, some of the uh, misunderstandings about how one is truly free is that, first, people have understood freedom, especially in our modern context, to be an outright rejection of all authority. Every type of authority that is over me, government, parents, uh, church, right, if you're submitting to your elders, whatever the case might be, it is a almost a carte blanche rejection of authority within our modern context. So that's air one. Um, but there are also uh, issues with governing rules and, and all these other items. But if we think about it, no one's ever fully free. And that's, that's what I want to, that's what I want to emphasize out of this text and philosophically as well, is you might say, I am completely free. But are you, are you really, right? Let's, let's, I'll use a sort of a dramatic example, if you will. Is God completely and entirely free? I would say no. Why? Because he is constrained by his character. There are things that God cannot do, right? And, and scripture is not going to hesitate to say that there are things that God cannot do. God cannot Throw something out there. Cannot lie. Cannot lie. That's the first one that comes to mind. Well, is God free to lie? No. Every being ever of any amount of power 
is always constrained by their nature or some other principle which governs their life, their actions, and what they do. So what freedom is, as I thought about it and tried to process through this, is freedom is a space. You could even say it's a vacuum. It sucks something into it. And so Paul is advocating for freedom here. Freedom is a space for virtue. It's a space for vice. Uh, And unfortunately for unredeemed humanity, most often freedom is a long enough rope by which humanity has classically hung itself, if you can use that analogy. So freedom is a space for virtue or vice. Paul here in Galatians wants the Galatians, wants us, everyone that's a Christian, to be free. All Christians are to be free. However, Paul wants you to understand that space that is created in this ideal of freedom is created in order for you to do good. Here's the irony. All beings are bound to some principle. Something is going to fill this void of getting to do what we want to do. What is going to fill that void is the question at hand. Paul's advocating for freedom, and then he moves on to that second step to say, this is how I want you to use that freedom. For example, I am free to run five miles. However, I am not free to run five miles in a much more real and tangible sense. If you are going to have a good use of freedom, you have to have a disciplined practice of good habits in order to use that freedom. So I can say, I can run five miles whenever I want to, and that is true in one sense. But if you've, uh, Donovan's not here tonight. Donovan would be able to testify that I am not free to run five miles consecutively whenever I want. Why? Because any good use of freedom requires extraordinary amounts of discipline. Hence the the book title that we went through just a couple months ago, Discipline Equals Freedom. You can say, I want to do this and I want to do this, but if you're not willing to put in the work to discipline your habits, then you're not going to be free to do what you truly want to do. So true freedom then is not a rejection of all authority. Let's get that straight off the top. But rather, true freedom is found in finding the authority which results in your greatest good. That is how... I I mean, I guess you could be truly free to do bad things, but a true good freedom is finding the authority that will result in you uh, having your highest end achieved. And so we have to ask, how do we get our highest end? What is our greatest end? These are valid questions, but we must submit ourselves to this sort of authority. Paul speaks to this, I would say, no more uh, clearly and completely than Romans 6, 15 through 23. You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, 
So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were once slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Couple things to point out about this. Number one, what a great definition of what it means to be a genuine Christian, which is that you have become obedient from the heart. I think that's a unique thing to Christians. But beyond that, for our purposes here, what Paul clearly draws out here is that you're always a slave to something. You're always a slave to something, but you can be free in regard to the opposite principle. So you're free in regard to sin, but you're a slave to God, or you're free from God, but you're a slave to sin. There is no complete and absolute freedom to be found anywhere, any being, ever, right? You have a principle that you are governed by. And when Paul advocates for freedom for the Galatians here, we have to sort of understand what is this true and good freedom that Paul wants the Galatians to enjoy? Verses 1 through 6. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So I don't want to belabor the point that we have hit on each week over and over again, but I think Josh provided a nice definition. Who is Paul dealing with here? Paul's dealing with the Judaizers, and the Judaizers are coming in. They're saying, Paul gave you a part of the gospel. That is true. You got the Jesus part, but now we need to teach you the rest in order to really become a part of the full family of God and to really achieve that final justification. You're going to need to add in works of the law. And so what Paul's been dealing with all along here is that you don't have to go into this yoke of bondage, this slavery to the law. And so as Paul kind of hits the pinnacle of what he wants the Galatians to do on the positive side, he advocates for their freedom. Now, if there is... um, Uh, there's just some really nice summary statements in scripture that you might want to commit to memory. This is one of them. Uh, Just that uh, verse one and that first part of it even there. For freedom, Christ has set you free. And this, I would say, is one of those rather duh kind of statements. But, But that's very helpful for me, right? Paul is clearly reiterating something in order to emphasize that point. Christ set you free from the law. But the question is for what? And, and Paul wants to quickly answer that. Paul didn't set you free so that you have to go back to another type of slavery. Christ set you free so that you can be truly free indeed. You are free for freedom. Now, Paul, um, of course, then encourages them to stand firm in this and not go back to that yoke of slavery. Paul uh, admonishes them to not give in to the Judaizers. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't set us free um, from all that is bad just to give us a bunch of rules that are just mere rules to crush us down for rules sake. The rules that we see in scripture, and I mean, if you read through the rest of Galatians, what are you going to find? You're going to find a lot of imperatives to the people of God saying, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, right? So we get more rules. 
but it's not the same as a law. And, and what I want to highlight here is that Jesus has given us these rules for our good. These rules are for our greatest good. And so when we say, what is, what is this true freedom that Paul is talking about? It's not go be free and do whatever you want. It's here's the way that you should live. And yes, it's glorifying to God, but it's also for you. I mean, this is so that you live a better life. But this raises the question, why those rules? You ever, have you ever thought about this? An alternate universe in which almost all morality is flipped? Have you ever considered that type of thing? Like, why didn't God set up the world such that lying was considered virtuous? I mean, he could, right? I mean, in an alternate universe. Uh, why? Uh, you know, this, this, is a, this is a helpful thought, I think, even in, in struggling through purity issues. Why did God establish it such that sex should be within marriage? Right? I mean, if you just step back from a secular perspective, you're like, wait a second, that sounds kind of arbitrary. Could have made up a whole different set of rules. Why this one? Why this one? And I'll be the, I'll be the first to say that this might not be something that we can fully get our minds wrapped around. But here is what I think we can say confidently, is that if God has ordained it to be such and has given us these set of rules, then it is for our good because it accords with reality. We may not know everything about why reality is the way that it is, but what we can say is, well, the Word of God is revealing to us metaphysical truth that is really real. And that's helpful to know. If you want to live a well-ordered life, then it's helpful to know what is real and what is true. And we'll move beyond that and say that I would say that some of the rules that Paul is going to give us for the rest here is... It is for our good, but it also accords with the nature of God. We can't, we can't forget that element, right? Morality isn't entirely arbitrary. It, lying is bad because God's character is such that he is truthful. And God can't be different than he is. He is who he is. And therefore, lying is wrong. Let's take the sexual example again. God is a God of intimate, exclusive relationship with his people, and he has allowed sex to be the picture of that in human relations, and he doesn't want that picture to be messed up, right? All of these commands, I would say, are rooted in something that is less than arbitrary, right? God is indeed concrete a certain way. But don't forget when we come to these rules that it's not just, you know, God spewing stuff on his people. This is helpful for you. If you want to live a good life, then do these things. Do these things. It will be helpful for you. I would argue that in any universe where God may be able to establish completely alternate morality, the, the troublesome part is that we would want to rebel against whatever that is too. It really doesn't matter what the command itself is. Humans' desires are against whatever it is. Here's why. We think that true freedom would be being the God of the universe. And that, that seems to be the core issue with pride and wanting to establish our own rules is that if we could just be God, we could establish it as we would like. And at its core, there is really, truly no more blasphemous thought than to think, if I could just be God, I would set up freedom to look like this. 
And that's not a healthy thought. That's really not a healthy thought at all. So what we can say confidently is that the rules that God has given to us are a true path to goodness because God is going to reign supreme. He's going to continue to be the king. And we either get on board with that agenda or we don't. And, and that's to our own destruction, right? That is not for our benefit that we do. So God is letting us know reality. It's like a parent who has a rule, if you will, to uh, eat the nutritious food before eating dessert. I mean, it probably doesn't really matter to the parent if you eat flan before you eat quesadilla, but it's for the child's good, ideally, that they would be able to consume something more nutritious and valuable to them before they move on to something less valuable. Not that my parents keep to that. No, uh, I, I think I turned out just fine, but you know. Flan's amazing. I had lots of flan growing up. I don't know why I'd pick on flan. I love flan. Um, so verses 2 through 4 then, um, we, I, we are presented with a dichotomy here. We are either going to receive Christ's benefits or we're going to go down the road of law keeping, right? Christ needs to be an advantage to us. Uh, we, are, we need to be united to Christ. We need God's grace in verses 2 through 4. And if we go down the law road, Paul is all the way through Galatians argued that these are either or. You can't have Christ and the law. If we are going to not go by the law-keeping road, then we need Jesus. And this is, this is no doubt a warning text. We have to come to terms with the fact that this is... This is a warning here, and I, would, I wouldn't take it as a reality that the Galatians have already fallen away. This is more of a hypothetical statement as, you know, if they do these things, then they will fall away from grace. This is what's going to happen if you go down this path. Um, Tom Schreiner summarizes these warning texts well. Um, Arminians under, understandably interpret these warnings to teach that believers can lose their salvation. I think this next sentence is a really good critique. Too often, Reformed believers ignore such warnings altogether. I would argue that the warnings are the means God uses to persevere the faith of those he has chosen. Those who fall away demonstrate that they did not truly belong to God, 1 John 2.19. But it does not follow that this, the, it does not follow this, that the warnings are addressed only to false believers. They are directed to the entire church, and God uses the severity of these warnings to remind believers of the need of trusting God until the end. Uh, in Proverbs, I think Proverbs summarizes this principle very well. Proverbs 22.3. Um, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer. The warning is given out to everyone. The righteous, the one who trusts in God, is going to look at that warning and say, you know, that's a dumb idea. I should, I should do what God wants me to do. The simple, the stupid, just go on to their own destruction. So as a Christian who has placed their faith in Jesus, uh, when I read apostasy texts, I, you know, these are still inspired scripture. I don't come to them and think, oh good, this doesn't apply to me because God is going to persevere me. Right? That's not the way that we should approach these texts. These are texts that are still applicable to us as believers. This is something that we should take and use as a means of inspiration, if you will, to persevere. Schreiner continues, We may fall into the danger of abstracting the warnings 
from their reality by reading them in terms of an ordo salutis or the order of salvation instead of reading them in the history of redemption. If we contemplate the strong admonitions in scripture from a viewpoint that transcends history, they can easily be thought of as superfluous. So if you hold to perseverance of the saints, for instance, you might say, you know what? Well, from a 10,000 foot view, I'm going to be saved. So what does this warning text matter to me anyways? Instead of viewing it as I am at this discrete moment in redemptive history and God is using the word to persevere me to the end. If, however, we grasp that the warning and admonitions are means God uses to persevere believers, the function of the warning is preserved. Warnings are not opposed to promises, but are one of the means God uses to fulfill his promises. Just like road signs keep us driving safely onto the highway, so warnings remind us to keep putting our trust in Christ. These texts are designed to be road signs, warnings, flashing lights on a foggy night that, hey, you need to stay on the path. Oh, hey, if you do this, I want you to know you're kind of falling off the right side of the road. You're becoming legalistic or other passages of scripture that are a warning. If you're falling off to this left side, you're getting really libertinism. You're struggling to see any righteousness in your life. There's a purpose for these admonition texts in scripture, not only to false Christians, but also to true believers as a means for their uh, uh, perseverance. So what do we need Christ for then? What is the telos, the end that Jesus is keeping us to? From verse 4, we move into verse 5. Through the Spirit, ours by faith, we eagerly await something, what? The hope of righteousness. And this is simply the fact that we are hoping in a concrete sense in a future final righteousness. This isn't to say that righteousness, justification, rightness with God is not a present reality for believers. But it is to say that the Apostle Paul even was, I can't wait to be saved on the final day. There is, I have been saved when I was saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved at that final day of righteousness when righteousness is revealed. So we are hoping, placing our sure confidence in a future righteousness where on that final day before the judgment seat of God, Christ stands and says, he is mine, and we are finally declared righteous and enter into the kingdom of God. Verse six, for in Jesus, neither circumcision, nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, I think this is great. This is Paul being balanced to the truth, right? Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. You would think in some sense, Paul, after coming through this whole thing, would just say circumcision doesn't matter. And yet, for whatever reasons, and divine providence, Paul chooses to balance his argument and sort of step back and say, hey, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or if you're not. Both sides of that coin don't matter. Acts 16, 1 through 3. So I want to show you just a couple, a couple points here in Paul's close companions where being circumcised or uncircumcised didn't matter for that hope of righteousness that Paul was seeking to achieve. Acts 16, 1 through 3. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by, by the brothers at Lystra, 
for this trip, and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were with those who were with those places, for they all knew that his father was Greek. As they went on their way, though through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. That's good. You're good. So there we have uh, there we have Timothy, Paul's close companion. And what does he tell Timothy to do? Get circumcised. Be circumcised. But why? What is the cause that follows that in that text? It's because of the surrounding Jews. Because of the surrounding Jews. Now let's take a look in Galatians two three. No one has this verse, but he tells Titus, "Don't be circumcised." Well, first off, I just say I'd rather be Titus at that age, but. Um, why? All right. Why would Paul tell one of his close companions to be circumcised and the other one, don't worry about it? Or actually, not just don't worry about it, don't. Well, obviously, Paul doesn't want the circumcision issue to be a stumbling block for the proclamation of the gospel amongst the Jews with Timothy. But when it comes to Titus, the Judaizers are coming along and say, you have to do this in order to be saved. And then Paul plants his flag in the ground and says, no, you are not going to be circumcised. I think this is a great illustration for Paul of saying circumcision, uncircumcision, it doesn't matter. Um, if you even follow Paul, and we'll get into this when we go through Acts, it's kind of a, it's kind of a complex issue with Paul and the law. Uh, even in my UND religion class, um, my professor was like, oh, Paul and the law is a really difficult topic, and obviously he's going to take it from a more liberal perspective. Paul's probably not consistent with himself, but I think... Paul is really consistent with himself. Acts 21, Paul's going up to Jerusalem, and he engages, I believe, in a Nazarite vow. Anyways, purification rituals with his Jewish cronies in, in Jerusalem. So how does that work? On one hand, Paul's saying, don't worry about it. You get circumcised, you don't. I'm going to go take a ritual cleansing before I go to the temple. How is this working? And I, I think the answer is simple, is that Paul wants people to enjoy their freedom but not offend others for the sake of the gospel. There is something more important than circumcision. And what is it? It is faith working through love. It's faith working through love. Uh, this has been uh, classically described by Calvin. It is not our doctrine that the faith which justifies is alone. We maintain that it is invariably accompanied by good works. Only we contend that faith alone is sufficient for justification or on the pop level, Salvation is by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. In order to say, you get saved by faith alone, but if it's a genuine faith, there are necessary and immediate consequences that are going to come from a real faith. It's going to result in good fruit, like the fruit of the Spirit, that we see down below. And so this is what genuine faith looks like, is faith working itself out through loving actions. And this is the order that we should see it. We shouldn't try to collapse our, our, our categories here of works into faith. And, you know, I, I appreciate the Lordship camp and I appreciate the repentance element in faith, but it is important to remember that good works are subsequent to faith and not try to collapse our definitions in, in order to say that we, we're kind of grinding works and faith together somehow in a mix. Instead, it's much better to say faith in Jesus will immediately result in things working out through 
love. And so what I think we see here is Paul is so free. (laughs) Paul is so free in regard to circumcision that it doesn't matter for him. Be circumcised? Don't be circumcised. Whatever's not going to offend people, why? For the gospel. That's what Paul cares about, is people believing the gospel. And so if Paul can, if Paul has exemplified this principle to the Galatians at all, Paul is a master of this principle of saying, yeah, I can agree with that. It's not a primary issue. I'll be happy to engage in that for the gospel's sake. Or no, the gospel is at stake here. I'm absolutely not giving in. And so I think we see Paul demonstrating fantastic freedom from the law by his ability to move into those communities and move out of those into Gentile communities with ease and with no issue. Okay, so that's the first section, verses one through six. That's our our first sort of closing argument here in our text from Paul. You are free from the law. You're free from the law. Then you get this little interlude that, you know, because we we just are are constrained by time, Uh, getting some nice notes in here from the margin of Nathan's Bible. Some really interesting things to say in verses 7 through 12 if you want to scan through that. But we're going to jump down to 13 through 16 here, which I've entitled Freedom from Yourself. Freedom from Yourself. You don't just need to be free from the Mosaic Law. You also need to be free from you. Verses 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, (coughs) take care that you are not consumed by one another. So when you are set free from the Mosaic law, you're not set free to just do whatever it is that you would want to do. There's a very, very simple reason for that. If you were set free to do whatever you would want to do, that actually would result in you incurring a new type of slavery. You'd be set free from Mosaic law, but then you would just be enslaved to your passions, to your desires, to do whatever your sinful bents are. If you're allowed to do it, you're going to just do that. But there's another reason that we need to be set free from ourselves. I'm, I'm working on setting some of my goals for 2024, and... I can picture what my life would be like if I were just disciplined enough to faithfully execute those goals all year. But guess who the biggest issue with completing these goals every single year is? This guy with two thumbs right here. Right? You are your biggest impediment to achieving true freedom because you're going to be sucked into doing whatever you want to do. You are, you lack discipline. You impede your own progress. You set yourself back in so many ways. And so if we were just set free to do whatever it is that I wanted to do, I would end up on the couch watching a lot of TV and doing absolutely nothing healthy for society or myself. It would be a very self-destructive spiral because guess what? By nature, I'm a lazy bum. I'm a sinful, lazy bum who wants what I want. And that's usually not a God-glorifying thing, a society-helping thing, a church-enriching thing, or good for me in any sense of the word. And so we don't just need to be set free from the law. We need to be set free from our own sinful bents, which I think Paul would say theologically, our own sinful bents get a hold of the law, which is good, and then twist it into something that it was not meant to be. Verse 13, 
Um, one of the, one, uh, Douglas Moo, one of the commentators on this text, translates it this way. In love, act as slaves toward one another. In love, act as slaves towards one another. So we kind of get a, a little bit of a paradox here, a little bit of a word play, if you would. This is quite the paradox, actually. Freedom is actually found in slavery. Great, thanks, Paul. You said... Christ has set you free so that you're really free and free indeed. Well, okay, great. But that freedom is, if it's going to be true and good freedom, is actually found within the bounds of an authority to God and the church and uh, ultimately to your fellow Christian, which is we need to be serving God and we need to be serving neighbor. And actually, uh, you know, Jesus says, what are the two greatest commandments? Love God, love neighbor. Paul only focuses on one right now and Maybe there's a social element that Paul wants to focus on. We don't know why. But Paul focuses on the, the neighbor component. You must serve your brother. That is what he wants that vacuum of freedom that Christ has created to be filled with, is service to other people at large, I suppose, but primarily even within the church. 1 Peter 2, 16 and 17. <clears throat> Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is a fantastic text because it, it mirrors not only what we've heard in Galatians here. Don't use this freedom as a spot for your flesh to suck in that space and energy. But then the next verse is so interesting that it's conjoined with it. Love God, honor the emperor, serve people, be a good citizen, right? There are structures and hierarchies that are God-ordained in society, and yet we're free. This is something we have to work within, is that authority does not mean that you're enslaved. Now, with that said, are there tyrannical authorities who overstep their God-given place? Absolutely. And is it at those points loving to self and loving to neighbor to reject tyrannical authorities. Absolutely. This is why, um, oh, it's been, it's been repopulated again, but it's um, within the reform tradition as well, is that love for um, uh, resistance to... Lesser magistrates. Uh, yeah, it's the lesser magistrates doctrine, but resistance to tyrants is obedience to God is... The quote, why? Because if someone is overstepping their appropriate authority, then it's no longer promoting human flourishing. Government, parents, etc., are there to promote human flourishing. This is why they exist. Authorities are for the service of those whom they are over. And so there's an appropriate place to reject authority. But unfortunately, that appropriate place is often sucked into a very fleshly desire to just say, I don't want anyone over me. Forget everyone. I'm going to do whatever I want. So I would say that Peter's reaction, Paul's reaction, is our default position should be one of submission to God-ordained authorities. We shouldn't be looking for an opportunity to buck authority. Authorities, when done rightly, are placed there for your good. They're there for your good. So, verse 14, then, if we look in Galatians again, for the whole law is fulfilled, in one word, and, and then it's numerous words. <laughs> um, but the whole law is fulfilled. What, is, what does that even mean? How is 
the law uh, set aside? How are Christians fulfilling the law? What does this mean? Obviously, different people are going to have different takes, and so well, you're stuck with me tonight, and so you're going to get my take on it. Uh, the Reformed tradition on this point is, how many, if I were to say covenant theology, how many of you are at least uh, familiar with the term covenant theology? Okay, so covenant theologians have typically divided the law into a tripartite view of the law, three parts. Um, three parts to the law. There's the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. That's how they've divided the Old Testament. There's moral laws like, you know, thou shalt not kill. There are ceremonial laws like bringing a lamb or, a, you know, the pigeons to the tabernacle. And then there are civil laws like here's how much tax, you know, you should have taken from the people of Israel. And so they have operated within these sort of, I don't, I don't want to say strict, but th there's uh, clear uh, markers between these different views of the law. But I, I remember where I was as clear as possible, uh, as clear as can be, I, I was reading through the Old Testament and I was, I mean, I was in high school, it's kind of what I grew up with on view of the law, and I was like, okay, that one's moral, and then I was like, that, the next verse, I was like, that's ceremonial, and then I was like, oh, that one's civil, so that one applies to me, and that one doesn't, and that one applies to me, and that one doesn't, and then I was like, wait just a minute. I'm just picking verses that I think are applicable. I would, I would actually rather say that the entire Old Testament law to a Jew is the moral law, right? Everything is moral. Everything is about obedience to God. And so when Paul says that the whole law has been fulfilled in Christ, I think we're saying that the whole law has been fulfilled in Christ, Romans 10.4. Ten four. Romans ten four. Uh, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. So we have to grapple with what we mean by the end of the law, and we also have to grapple with statements like the, "No jot or tittle is going to pass away." Right? These are these are things that we have to navigate. So how do we put this together? So let's let's start with that. I'm rejecting a strict tripartite view of the law. I'm saying that the whole law is set aside. Okay, great. So are we under the Ten Commandments? This is a great test, test case. Are we under the Ten Commandments? In a strict sense, and this would be a, this would be a time to hear me the whole thing and not, not pick snippets to hear. Um, are we under the Ten Commandments? Strictly, I would say no. Do we obey most of the Ten Commandments? Yes. And there's a, there's a slight nuance to be made there. Why? Well, what, what law are we under now? What is the phrase that I think Paul continually uses throughout the New Testament? Galatians 2, 1 Corinthians 9, James 2, and Romans 13. All those. Galatians 6-2. Sure, why not? I'll take one of them. one of them burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, so there's our first thing. We have this law of Christ motif. First uh, Corinthians 9. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So here we have law of love. Now we've added law of Christ, and these seem to be the two terms that I think Paul's going to go back and forth between. Uh, James 2.12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. 
Okay, James, you know, being James has his own way to say things. Uh, law of Liberty, this is your, this is even, even better, right? Law of Freedom, what does that mean? Okay, great, Romans 13, 8 through 10. So we're, let's, let's stick with law of love. I think that's a summary of all of the others. It's perhaps the most generic of the statements. So what is the law of love? Well, I, th- I think there are a couple things that we can say here. Is first, that the law of love removes legalism. You're not looking to a rule book to say, this is what I should do, this is what I should do, this is what I should do, or this is what I should not do. You're looking at situations and saying, what is the most loving thing that I can do for God and for neighbor? And so this is really, really difficult to be legalistic with. Why? Well, you say, you can do rules just fine and, and, and get away with a lot of stuff. If you've played any sort of game with me, you know that I am a natural... Pharisee of Pharisees. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? And, um, not, I mean... It, Yes, yes. I'm just, I'd make a good, like, attorney wannabe, right? Uh, you, can, you can find so many loopholes in any way that anything is written. And let me bounce off your comment. The Pharisees did. They found loophole after loophole to take part of their house with them. So that they wouldn't leave. They're, they're adding rules and then being legalists about their own rules. That's, that, that's next level stuff. I mean, you're adding and being legalist about it. So it removes legalism because when Paul adds this law of love, he says, you know, and such things as these, right? You can't even get out of Paul. He's like, I mean, as a Pharisee, he knows that you can't just give a rule. You, you say, and anything that feels like the same flavor, stop it, right? It really undercuts the legalism. Now there's a second point. Again, good time to hear all the way through. I think there is appropriate moral flexibility in the law of love that is not afforded under a strict rule book. Let's take a biblical example first. Let's take David and the showbread. The disciples picking grain on the Sabbath. Jesus has some very odd responses to the Pharisees who are inundated with a legalistic viewpoint. Did David do anything wrong by taking bread that he should not have been taking by the book? and I, I think Jesus' answer is no. David was not in the wrong for doing that. Did he violate the rule to the T, if you would? Yes, he did. But was it wrong of him to do? No. Why? Because people were starving in his army. He did what was loving. Jesus allowed the disciples to eat on the Sabbath because they were hungry. They needed food, right? So he did what was loving to people. Now, let's bring it back to Galatians. David wasn't consuming things on his own flesh. He wasn't doing these things out of his own lust. He was doing what was loving for others. And so I would say that there is an appropriate moral flexibility in the sense that you cannot legislate for all of the possible situations that are going to come up in life. You can't. And once you try to, you have a set of rules, some situation comes up, you can revert back to the legalism and say, I'm good on the rules, I get to do this. And I I think this is even some of what we see in the prophets, right? 
a lot of situations come up and then boom I have no rule I'm good I can do whatever I want and, and the prophets say no uh, do justice love your neighbor love God walk with him humbly right there are principles to be followed here so what is the point of the Old Testament law for us today Romans uh, 7 7 and 15 14 I don't think I handed out 15 14 sorry Romans 7 7 what shall we say then is the law sin may it never be on the contrary I would not have come to know sin except through the law for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet Romans 15 4 a very general idea here. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Let's take this moral flexibility point once again. So, you, if, again, if you've been here for any amount of time, you know I love speed limits as the perfect test scenario for everything. And I, I've had some very defined views on what you should do with speed limits. Um, but let me say something that might shock some of you. I think there are plenty of instances where it is sinful not to speed. Say you have a pregnant wife beside you who needs to get to the hospital and no, no cross traffic. And you can, some of you can see me doing this, sitting at that red light, waiting for it to turn green. And she's screaming at me, go. And I'm like, but it's red. I can't. Or, or even as some of the symbols, you're putting other people in danger by going uh, slowly, okay? So there are sinful ways to go the speed limit. And I would also say there are plenty of sinful ways to speed. Maybe you're suffering the consequences for not leaving when you should have. Maybe you just want to get somewhere faster or maybe you have the need for <laughs> speed and you just enjoy it, right? There are sinful ways to speed and not speed. This is the appropriate moral flexibility is that love dictates what you're going to do. The engineers, the authorities, have put a certain parameter on what they think is safe for this road. By and large, we should follow it. That should be our submission, or our posture of submission to the authorities. Yet we also have to realize that there are, there are circumstances when that's no longer viable. You could go the speed limit in terrible conditions, and I have, and that's terribly dangerous to everyone around. 55, when there's six inches of snow on the ground and you're in a Fiat, is not loving, right? That's not a good thing to do, but it's legal. So is that right or is it wrong? And I would advocate that the law of love would say that that's wrong. So what's the point of all the law? Um, I think what Paul is getting at here is that we can make up any definition for what loving is. Uh, you, can, you can think of... Um, Almost any example, Paul uses the illustration of coveting. Paul says, I would not have known not to covet if the law had not told me, don't covet. So it provides us a, a, a sort of ground um, or, or to bring it into our modern culture. What does it mean to love someone? We have slapped as a culture any definition on this word love. So if you take culture's definition of love and import it into scripture, then you can come up with any conclusion you want about homosexual marriage or whatever. As long as it's consensual, then it's okay. But what does the Old Testament do? It puts boundaries around what it's God's revelation of himself and what he deems to be loving. So we end up in a similar place to a tripartite view, which is ironic. We end up doing the moral law, if you want to use that terminology. But I think that there's a better way to view it in the sense that it is 
through the Spirit, applied with faith, uh, the Old Testament used as guideposts and signs that say this is what God has for us as loving. Uh, Spurgeon has, has a quote that I think really summarizes this well. What is God's law now? It is not above a Christian. It is under a Christian. Some men hold God's law like a rod and terror him over Christians and say, if you sin, you will be punished with it. It is not so. The law is under a Christian. It is for him to walk on, to be his guide, his rule, his pattern. We are not under the law, but under grace. Law is the road which guides us, not the rod which drives us, nor the spirit which actuates us. The law is good and excellent if it keeps its place. And indeed, it does show us what is good to do. So instead of finding a rule for every possible situation from Scripture, what I would encourage you to do is, by the Spirit, ask yourself, what would be loving to do in this situation? And if we were able to be fully consistent in saying, I do what is loving toward God, and in this text, towards neighbor at every single point in my life. Not that anyone's going to achieve that. But if you were, if you were able to hit that point where you say, every time I come to a situation, I truly do what is most loving toward God and neighbor, then I think that you would find that you never sin. <laughs> you don't need a rule book. The Spirit is teaching you how to love. Now those rules show us what that love means, and that's okay. But if we were able to honestly say, I set aside that flesh, I set aside those evil desires, they popped up, I crushed them down, and I decided to go what was better for my neighbor every single time, we would be in a fantastic place, relationally and before God. One of the ways that you can think about the fulfilling of the law portion, Paul says, we've been set free from the law, but then, as a matter of fact, we end up fulfilling the law, is curfew or a bedtime when you were a child. I, don't, I was going to say you. You, oh, you actually might be a good example. You probably did have a curfew that you had to be home by. Um, you definitely had a curfew. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, so let's say you're, you're given a curfew. Right? And what does any law, Paul, say in Romans 7? What does the law provoke because of the sin within us? It provokes a desire to do whatever the opposite of that rule is. You want me to be home at 10? I now want to be home at 10.05 and then 10.15, right? A law creates in us a desire to do pretty much anything else except the rule. But then you become an adult and that rule gets taken away. You don't have that law over you anymore. I'm, I'm going to roll with the curfew example. But when you become an adult, you recognize that 5 a.m. comes really early in the morning. And there is wisdom in getting to bed at a good time. And so now, not only do you not get home at 10, you get home at 9 because you want to go to bed. And this is the difference. You're set free from the law. But there's a spirit within you showing that, you know, that actually is the right thing to do. And so now you fulfill the law, even though it's no longer over you. In a sense, you had to be set free from the requirement of the law in order to desire to do the thing which the law had always wanted you to do in life. And so Paul was so strong in this freedom that he is able 
to engage in the law, like we said, not engage in the law for the sake of not causing others to stumble. Romans 14, 13 through 19. Therefore, let's not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother or sister's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to the one who thinks something is unclean, to that person it is unclean. For if because of food your brother or sister is hurt, you are no longer walking in accordance with love. Do not destroy with your choice of food that person for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for a good thing be spoken for as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For the one who serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and approved by other people. So then we pursue these the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Paul theologically agrees with the strong camp. He says it's not, it doesn't matter whether you eat or drink. But if you love meat or wine so much that you can't give up your freedom for the sake of sharing the gospel and for maintaining the unity of the body, then it is a sin to you. Paul was willing to give up this freedom in a heartbeat for the sake of Christ's body. Now this is also causing them to stumble, causing them to leave the faith. This is not necessarily just an offense and a discussion. Um, Verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed. You're free. Now, do what is right. Don't use it wrongly and tear each other apart like wild animals. That's what happens when people are free. So, Koinonia, you guys are free in Christ. And yet there is always, if you're in leadership for any amount of time, you're over anyone in authority, and you really care about someone, it's always tempting to try to control people so that they do right. You want to will them to it. But you have to keep in mind, people always resist you willing and lawing them into something. And so what did Paul do? Paul taught the word. He prayed for the spirit to apply it in their heart. And then he allowed the church to sit there and uh, admonish and correct. You know, we don't always listen to the word of God like we should. We don't always listen to the spirit like we should. So we do have another check in that. The church helps us to stay in balance. Book on missions here um, and how he was, uh, this guy's arguing that we should interact with um, foreigners and missions. Really applicable to any sort of spiritual leadership. When we attempt to deal or to administer a a code which is alien to the thought of the people with whom we deal, we appeal to precedents which are no precedents to them. We quote decisions of which our hearers do not understand either history or the reason, without satisfying their minds or winning consent of their consciences, we settle all questions with a word. This is unfortunate because it leaves people unconvinced, uneducated, and it teaches them the habit of unreasoning obedience. They learn to expect law and delight in the exact fulfillment of precise and minute directions. By this, we make it difficult to stir the consciences of our converts when it is the most important thing that their consciences should be stirred. Bereft of exact directions, they are helpless. They cease to expect to understand the reason for things or to exercise their intelligence. Instead of seeking illumination from the Holy Ghost, they prefer to trust formal instructions from foreign guides. The consequence is that when their foreign guide cannot or will not supply precise commands, they pay little attention to his godly exhortations. Councils 
which have no precedent behind them, seem weak. Law doesn't convince people. They have to believe it from within their own heart. So, Koinonia, know that you are free from sin, Satan, self, sin and Satan and self, taking those good laws and twisting them into something that was not helpful for humanity. Know that you are now a slave to a new good and kind master and do serve God and neighbor in love instead of serving yourself and your own selfish desires. Amen? Okay. Um, so we're going we're gonna to do two songs, right? And we have two songs for tonight. Um, we'll close on this, and as we, this will be our last songs for uh, 2023. So um, we'll have a lot of people. So just uh, stand up and move a little bit closer to the instruments so they're not the focal point and you're not just sitting around like a bump on a lawn. Um, so, Josh, what are our two songs for this evening? Man of Sorrows and Death Was Arrested. Man of Sorrows being first. As we reflect on what Sam taught in Galatians of being free, we do have this freedom, and but not to misuse that freedom. And it ex- should be an extremely encouraging and, uh, I guess, pun intended, green thing to fall into this um, wonderful, wonderful um, truth that we have tonight.
But Sherry passed away last year. She was a very God-fearing lady, so it's just a really cool way to see God has used a God-fearing couple, a couple living in that house, and has passed it along to another mm-hmm. God-fearing couple. So just, it's a really cool place to be there. I've already been there once and had an amazing conversation with Miss Sherry. She passed away last year, and uh, she was very devoted, very disciplined. The last verse she wrote in her journal was, um, these three remain faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. So may love abound all the more in the guys' mm-hmm. And even better, Jim is still around, mm-hmm. and he goes to church here. And we had yeah. no idea until we sat signing oh, wow. papers at closing, and he was like, yeah, I go to LifePoint. And Sam was like, so I'm a pastor at LifePoint. <laughs> <laughs> it was really funny. Anyway, so yeah, the Lord is very cool, but um, we'll see if we see him in the morning. Here, but we should probably text him tonight, so she's going to be there in the morning. Should I get the pastor discount? <laughs> 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 Lower that price just uh, Tevin, do you want to close us? Lord, thank you for this just wonderful opportunity to grow in fellowship and uh, dive deeply into your word. I'm just so grateful that we have a loving community that we can show uh, just a Christ like behavior and a love towards one another on our friends and our family and our environments and just the, the places that you have placed us in our lives, Lord. And uh, I pray that we take that as we go uh, throughout the world and throughout our week. And uh, in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.